So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Chris gave me 23 verses to go through. He did like four last week and he spent like 45 minutes and I have 23. So I hope you guys don't have lunch plans because we're going to be here for a while. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one at the table right over there or download one from the app store on your phone. Uh, But we're going to dive right in here today. So you can turn uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Just to remind us really quick, Matthew is one of four books that deals with the life and teachings of Jesus. Uh, As I said, we've been going through this book for a while. I think we're in like week 64 or something like that. Uh, We're on chapter 13 out of 28. So um, not only do I talk long, but we go slow. So it's going to be a fun day. All right. Uh, Let's get uh, started here. So chapter 13, verse 1 says this. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat down by the lake. All right. We're going to stop here for a moment. (laughs) Classic, I know. Uh, Whenever you see something that is uh, like this, where there's an indication that Matthew or whoever the author in the Bible is, is trying to connect something from a previous chapter or previous verse to something that's coming up, uh, that's an indication that we got to go back and and look at what he's talking about. So he's using a temporal or a time-related Uh, mechanism to do that. He's saying that same day. So Matthew wants us as his readers to know that he's about to uh, tie in to something that's just happened. So uh, let's go back a little bit and just be reminded of what's happened in Matthew so far. So we know uh, that Jesus has come onto the scene and he's preached this incredible, incredible message that God deeply cares about humanity so much so that he is bringing his rule and reign to bear. And Jesus preaches this, this good news about the kingdom of God coming. And there's people who just respond to that message. They start to follow Jesus and he gathers them together uh, and he starts to teach them this is what the kingdom of heaven is like and it's radical. He says things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those people who know the depth of their need for God. And then he starts to demonstrate what that kingdom looks like. He's doing these incredible things. He's healing sick and and broken people. He's restoring people who are uh, pushed to the margins of society, inviting them back into community. He's freeing people from spiritual oppression. He's demonstrating how good the kingdom is. And in Matthew chapter 11, chapter 12, the section that we just came out of, Matthew starts to record how different people are responding to Jesus. And so on one hand, you have people who are really excited about Jesus, like the disciples. They're following him. They're engaged by him. They're intrigued by him. They want more of him. But then you have people who are a little bit more ambiguous. They're not quite sure about Jesus. You have someone like John the Baptist who He's intrigued, but he's unsure. He doesn't know if Jesus is the real deal. You have the crowds all around Jesus, and they're excited. He's doing all these crazy things, and they're really engaged and interested. But they're not quite ready to say, yeah, I think think you're Lord. But then you have people who are, in fact, antagonistic towards Jesus. Now, I want you to just to imagine how you would feel for a second if you were one of Jesus' followers. You've been walking with Jesus for a while and you have seen the incredible things he's doing and you have heard the incredible message that he is preaching. And you know, man, this guy is this promised Messiah that we've been hearing about. 
what's the question that you're going to be asking when you see these varied responses? If Jesus is this Messiah, why isn't everyone getting it? I mean, we're seeing the things that he's doing. We're hearing just the incredible message that he has. It's stirring our hearts. Why isn't this happening to everyone? If you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, maybe you've experienced this. You've experienced Jesus in some powerful ways, and you you tell those stories to your friends or your family, and it's just not quite clicking. And sometimes they think you're downright crazy. That's the question that I think that Jesus is going to answer for us today. See, his disciples have been seeing all this take place. And we as Matthew's readers have been seeing this all take place. And yet we're seeing that it's not clicking for everyone. And the question that is coming up is the why. Why isn't it clicking for everyone? So although Jesus is going to shift gears here, Matthew is going to record Jesus taking this time to do a block of teaching. And he's going to teach in a little bit of a different way than he has before. He's going to teach in a form called parables. Uh, You might be familiar with the term parable. It's usually meaning a concrete story, something from everyday life that can be used to illustrate abstract truth. So, for example, sometimes you use the metaphor of like cleaning to talk about how you're changing your life. Like I'm cleaning up my life right now. What are we doing there? We're taking the metaphor of like cleaning a house, which is not abstract, it's concrete, to help us deeply, uh, more deeply understand the work that's taking place in our life. This is the form that Jesus is going to teach in. And his disciples later in our passage today are going to ask, why are you teaching this way? And Jesus will answer this. Uh, but I, I want to point out a couple things for us. Number one, parables are what we would call meditation literature, which means they're there so that we actually have to work a little bit harder to understand the meaning. And that's not unintentional. Jesus wants us to have to start to dig through this a little bit more. Why might that be? Because it's going to stick with you more. When you start to have to work through something, it's not something that's just going to poof, be gone. I could tell you a piece of information, but if you actually have to work it out for yourself, it's more likely that it'll stick with you. But secondly, stories emotionally move us in different ways. I mean, think of some of the most iconic parables in the Bible, the parable of the lost son. It's this emotive story that helps us understand the, the great and vast love of God or the parable of the good Samaritan a story that attaches itself to us in potent, powerful ways, and it moves and stirs our emotions so that we can start to understand what it means to respond to others in the same way that God has responded to us. So Jesus is not just doing this for kicks and giggles. He wants us, as the listeners, number one, to engage it at a deeper level, to start to really wrestle through what these things mean for us. And through that, he wants us to be emotionally stirred so that we can understand him better. So let's dive in again. So starting now in verse 2, it says this, Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. And while all the people stood on the shore, then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow, uh, sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. 
Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus is dressing the crowds. His disciples are with him. They're hanging on this boat. And he starts to tell this story. It's not even really quite a story. It's more like an illustration. Now, for those of us who are not familiar with agriculture, I fully admit I am not much of a green thumb. Every year, my mom uh, graciously and lovingly uh, demonstrates her love for me by putting some uh, planters together. Um, And uh, I do my best to keep them alive. And sometimes I get some herbs out of them. But apart from that, I'm really not good with agriculture. So this is a little bit out of my wheelhouse. But uh, I had a chance to do some reading uh, just to understand uh, what would have been so common for people in Jesus' day? So he's, he's using a pretty common picture. Most people grew up around here in an agrarian society, which means they, they grew their own food. They were farmers by trade. And so a farmer's going out in his field. Well, farmers back then, they didn't have big fancy machines. And so the farmer's going out and he's got a little bag of grain and he's, you know, he's throwing the grain out, you know, kind of the scatter move. Uh, and the seed's going to fall kind of wherever he throws it. And so fields back then, uh, they didn't have deer fences or anything like that. It wasn't like a huge quarter plot of land. And because you were going through and, uh, and seeding by hand, what would happen as you're going through, you start to make pathways. Those pathways get the dirt all packed down. So what's naturally going to happen is if you cast your seed on that pathway, it's not going to get into the soil, which means it's not going to be able to germinate and uh, get those uh, roots going down and then sprout. So the first picture that we have is one where the seed falls on the path. And naturally what's going to take place is the birds are going to see it as free food. They're going to come and pluck it and it's gone. And then we have this second metaphor, the seed that falls on the rocky soil. And by rocky soil, Jesus isn't referring to soil that has a lot of rocks in it. He's talking about soil that is on top of bedrock that's close to the surface. And so what would happen is initially the seed goes into the soil and the sun comes out and it warms the soil quickly. It takes less time because it's shallow soil and the, the roots go down and the seed starts to sprout up. But here's the problem. As soon as it gets to the warm season, that sun is going to come and scorch that plant. And because the roots don't go deep enough, they can't get the nutrients and water needed to sustain them through that heat. And so they wither and die. And then we have a third set of seeds that's cast among the thorny soil or the weedy soil. I don't know about you, but every summer my grass dies. You know what doesn't die? Dandelions. Yeah, all the time. I, every summer I like go to war. I get one of those like weed sticks and I'm just like, whoosh, you know, throw it out. Uh, and no matter what, those dandelions take all the good nutrients, whatever is left, You know, after the sun comes out, my grass dies, but those dandelions live. They choke everything else out around them. And these are the seeds that Jesus is talking about that fall among the thorns. You know, initially they grow up and they they might even live, 
but they're so deprived of nutrients by the thorns around them that they are not fruitful at all. But finally, we come to this point where some seed falls on good soil. And not only does it sprout in, uh, a, in fruitfulness, not only does it produce, but it produces in abundance 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. That's incredible. But what's interesting is there's different amounts. So let's just imagine for a second, we're the crowd hearing this for the first time. We're going to get to hear Jesus interpret this for us later, but for now, I want to just invite you into this experience of thinking through this. Start asking yourself some questions. I've posted a few uh, that should be on the screen behind me. Questions like, what has come before this in the story that Matthew's telling that would inform him in placing this parable right here? Who is the sower? Who or what do the seeds represent? And who or what does the soil represent? And finally, what does it mean that there are different levels of produce from the good seed? Jesus calls those who have ears to hear to listen and understand. Verse 10, it says, The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? We're confused, Jesus. There are easier ways to communicate, aren't there? I mean, really. If I want to give you a piece of information, I could just tell you it straight up. I don't need to give you some kind of riddle that you have to work through. Listen to what Jesus replies here. Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. The knowledge of the secret of the kingdom of heaven? I mean, Jesus, you have been going around preaching the good news about the kingdom of heaven. What secrets are you talking about? When I hear the word secret, I think of, you know, the insider information, right? The, the kind of information that I share with someone else. It could even be like something about someone else. Uh, but the word here that gets translated as secret is a little bit more nuanced than that. You see, the, the word secret here refers to information that can only be attained by someone giving it to you. Now, I know that's true of every secret, but this more so than others has an implication of divine truth. Here's a, an example that I would use to help us understand it. If you don't know my name, my name would be a secret to you, meaning unless myself or someone else tells it to you, you're not going to know it. This is the way that Jesus is using the term secret. He's not saying it's like some kind of secret society or secret information that we have as insider. He's saying there is information about the kingdom that has been revealed to you by God that other people have not yet had that experience of. He's, he's not trying to say here that they can't. There's no indication that he's saying, you have it, they don't, 
good for you, you're awesome, they suck. No, he's saying at this moment, you have this thing that's going to allow you to understand the depth of these parables. So what is the secret of the kingdom? Well, to put it simply, it's the classic Sunday school answer, Jesus. But in particular, not just Jesus, but who he is in the kingdom. Leon Morris is a New Testament scholar, and he writes this, and I think it's helpful for us. He says, Now the most significant truth about the kingdom was the place of Jesus in it. It was precisely because they, meaning the disciples, had accepted the revelation that Jesus was the Messiah who would bring in the kingdom that the disciples were able to understand and respond to the teaching in parables. How do we interpret interpret this parable? I mean, we have no context. We have nothing to fully understand what Jesus is talking about. Here's the reality that Jesus is pointing to. Saying, in order for you to fully get what I have for you, you have to understand who I am. Jesus is the key that unlocks what it means to be part of God's kingdom. Many of us like the idea of what we think the kingdom is on paper. There are religious organizations and churches all throughout our country and our city. And they would tell you, man, we love the kingdom of God. But the problem is, is the kingdom of God without Jesus as its king is meaningless. And this is the point that Jesus is making. He continues on in verse 12 and says, Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Oh my gosh. That sounds super harsh, right? Like, okay, you got something, you can have more. You don't got anything, well, whatever little you have, I'm going to take it away from you. This is not good, nice, friendly Jesus, is it? Well, here's, here's what we need to understand. Jesus is talking about the investment that comes from faith. He's saying, when you have me, man, you're you're like the seed that bears fruit. But if you don't get me, you're like the seed that falls on the path. And a bird's just going to come and snatch it away. I, uh, I was in high school, uh, I graduated in 2005, so it's been like 14 years, 15 years since I was in high school. And uh, I took, you know, physics and chemistry and math and French. And then I went off to college and took biblical studies. I don't really know much French. I have no idea at all what I learned in math in grade 12. I don't know anything about physics. I remember one word, centripetal or centrifugal force. Uh, Chemistry, I'm completely lost. Why is that? Because I didn't use it. I never applied it. I never allowed it to become a regular piece of my life. What Jesus is saying here is, when you receive the gospel, when you receive me, you got to invest in that. That, got, that needs to shape you. And as that 
happens, it transforms you and it changes you and it grows in you. But if you have this message of me and you do nothing with it, then it's all for naught. It's completely lost. He goes on to say in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. And he quotes from the prophet Isaiah here. Listen to this. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear and understand. In them is fulfilled the, prophet, the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And listen to this. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Do you hear the heart of Jesus in that? They would turn and I would heal them. Well, what's, what's he saying? Well, he's, he's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah, a prophet, lived several hundred years before Jesus and he had this commission. Isaiah chapter six, it says that he's brought into the throne room of God and God gives him this message for Israel. This message that should transform them and empower them to live under his rule and reign. But God says to Isaiah, I'm going to give you this message, but the people aren't going to listen to you. Why aren't they going to listen to you? Because it doesn't matter how much I say to them, their hearts are calloused. They have closed their eyes. That's an active, that's an active sentence. They have closed their eyes. What Jesus is saying is it doesn't matter how I speak to the crowds. I could speak to them in parables. I could speak to them straight up. But they're still not going to get the secret of the kingdom because their heart is actively, actively against it. The Apostle Paul captures this thought in Romans chapter 1. It won't be on the screen behind me, but I'll just summarize it for you. He says that everywhere we look, there's pointers to God. You're driving down the Veterans Memorial Parkway, you see the Olympic Mountains in the distance. You go to Goldstream and you see the salmon somehow figure out, after years and years, how to come back to this tiny little stream in which they were born. You drive in from Souk, and you see the beautiful Souk Basin and East Souk Park around you. You climb up Mount Finlayson, and you see the Souk Hills stretching all around you, the vastness of the ocean. And God says, all of this points to me, to a creator. But the way that Paul describes it, he says they actively suppress the truth. What Jesus is saying is our heart's natural inclination is to actually close our ears and our eyes 
to God. Their hearts are hardened against him. So to answer the question that we asked earlier, why is it that after all Jesus has said and done that people aren't responding to him? In this moment, what Jesus is saying is it's a wonder that anyone has responded to him. When our hearts are so oriented in the opposite direction. But listen to what he says to the disciples in verse 16. But blessed are you. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Friends, in this moment, what I hope you understand is that he did not discover the secret of the kingdom. It was given to us. We did not sprout up and become good seed because we were great soil. We had a farmer who cultivated us, who took our rotten, tough heart and replaced it with a heart of flesh that could respond to him when our natural inclination is anything but that. Is that not good news? What does Jesus say? He says, man, there are people who have way better qualifications than you, righteous people, prophets, people who spoke the very words of God, who helped create the scriptures, who longed to be in this place where they could see it come to fulfillment, where they could see all that God had been pointing to and promising come to fulfillment in me. And you are the ones who get to experience it. Church, do we ever take a step back and just wonder at the incredible reality that we live in? I mean, we live in a time when we fully have the realized salvation of God in the past that we can rely on. We have hope for the future. We know that Jesus has conquered sin and death on our behalf and that we will live for eternity with God in a new heavens and new earth. But not only that, we have the very presence of God living in us through his spirit. All of history yearn for this moment and we get to live it out. That is incredible. When that reality starts to take shape in our heart, what flows out of us is this incredible joy. And that joy will naturally lead to fruitfulness. So this brings us again to Jesus' explanation of his parable. Verse uh, Verse 18 Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground uh, refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. 
When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So, four different responses to the word. Let's answer those questions we asked earlier. Who's the sower? That's Jesus. What is the seed? That's the, the gospel, the word of God, the message of the kingdom. What do the soils represent? Though They represent the way that our heart responds to the gospel. So let's look again at the examples he gives. There's the hardened soil. I have a friend who uh, I regularly get together with. He's not a believer, doesn't know Jesus, doesn't, I don't think at this point, have any desire to know Jesus uh, every once in a while, we get into a really good conversation. And I mean, he knows that uh, I work as part of a church, that I'm one of the people who gives leadership to this, that this is something that has shaped fundamentally my life. And so I get these moments where I get to share the gospel with him. But it's like the seed that falls on the hard soil. It, it never has taken root. You know, he probably thinks that it's something that's interesting for me. But... Something just comes and snatches it away. And Jesus wants us to be clear that there are things out there, there are spiritual forces that do not want the seed to take fruit in our, take root in our life and bear fruit. And so there may be some of you who think, yeah, I don't know, I'm, I'm just not buying all of this. And you think, I'm just making this decision on my own. And I want to encourage you to, to ask, is this really a decision that you're making on your own? Is it possible that there are things out there, beings out there that are actually stopping you from this? Because they know that what would happen if that seed gets broken into your life and bears fruit, that it's going to be absolutely transforming for you. Then we have the second seed, right? The seed that falls on the, the rocky soil. And initially it gets so excited. It hears the gospel. It's the heart of the person who just is so excited. It's fresh, it's new. And it initially has this incredible springing up. And then something comes along. And it's a little bit more challenging. It's a little harder. It's a little bit more costly than I was anticipating. And that bush or plant dies. Prior to uh, coming here and being part of West Village, I had worked in a church in Edmonton for several years. And there was a, a guy there that I knew. He'd been part of the church for a little while. Uh, he, um, he had come in junior high and been invited by a friend. And, uh, and kind of got to this point as a young adult where he's like, okay, I think I really need to start to, to look into this and take this seriously. And and initially, that seed of the gospel started to bear fruit and take root in his life. And we started to see some excitement and momentum grow in him. But I remember sitting down with him, and we had been talking about him taking the step to be baptized. 
And he went, had gone home after his initial excitement about this and talked to his family. And his family was like, yeah, that's cool. You do your thing. But they weren't really too excited about it. And he started to realize, okay, this is going to be different for me with my family. They're not going to get this. And then he started to reflect. He'd been part of the church for a long time. So he, he knew kind of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And, and he started to realize, oh, this is actually going to change the different aspects of my life in some significant ways. Like, I'm going to actually have to change the way I live if I allow this seed to grow in me. And I remember sitting down with him, and after this initial sprout of excitement and passion, listen to him say, yeah, I don't think this is for me. I'm going to walk away from all of this. And that seed that had initially sprouted in him died. And then there's the seed that gets planted near the thorns. What I find so interesting about this seed is that it never is described as dying. It's just described as not fruitful. What happens? Well, the seed grows up, but the, the thorns or the weeds choke it out. And Jesus actually tells us what the weeds are. He says two things the cares of this life, and wealth. What are the cares of this life? It's the rat race, right? It's all the things that you get regularly pulled into. Finances. How do I get ahead? I want a new car, a new house. I want my kids to have every opportunity in the world. Chris actually spoke on this when I, last week when he talked about what it means to be a family that's also part of God's family. Is it possible that as parents, we are so concentrated on the cares of this world when it comes to our kids that they're actually choking out our fruitfulness? Is it possible that we care so deeply about our career, we're so invested in it, that it's actually choking out our ability to be on mission. What about wealth? Are, are we so concentrated on what we can have or what we can accumulate or what we want? You know, the latest vacation, the newest iPhone, that we're actually being constricted from bearing fruit. But then... There's the good soil. And the good soil produces. Now here's the thing, it doesn't produce equally. Some of us in this room are 30 timers. Some of you are 60 timers. And some of you might be 100 timers. But what do we need to notice? We need to notice that an encounter with Jesus leads to fruitfulness. There's a couple of things I want to draw out here before we conclude. The first is, if the beginning, when I asked you that question, do you, do you share your faith? Do you share the gospel with people? Are you on mission? And, and you just are like, why isn't anyone getting this? I, I want you to be encouraged. 
I want you to be encouraged because what this parable shows us, what this passage tells us is that it is the sower, the farmer, who ultimately controls the outcome of the crop, not us. Now, we are a seed that can be fruitful, but we can't grow a seed. And Jesus made it so clear that the natural heart's orientation is hard ground. And so only the farmer can go into that pathway and break it up so that that soil can become good soil. So your job isn't to transform hearts. You can't. It's impossible. It's simply to be faithful and fruitful with the message that you have received. But there's a second thing I want to draw out for us. A question that I think we all need to ask ourselves. And that is, what kind of soil is my heart right now? See, these soils, I think, represent different responses to Jesus' message, but they also are indicative of the different ways that our hearts are regularly oriented to the gospel as it takes root in our life. We use this term a lot in West Village, gospel fluency. The way that we learn to take the gospel, not just see it as a one-time, get-out-of-hell-free card, but a way that we see the truth of who Jesus is transform our identity in such a way that we become different people. And that is a regular discipline that has to take place in our life. It's why we do DNA groups. What is a DNA group? It's a group where we regularly get together with a couple other people and are reminded of this truth so that the hard soil of our life can get broken up by the good work of the gospel and it can sprout into us in the more fruitfulness. So let me ask you, are you in a place in your heart that's just hard? You come maybe every Sunday. Maybe you're part of a community group. And yet, anytime you hear it, it's like your brain shuts off. Or maybe you're like the seed that has fallen on rocky soil. And your heart has initially got excited. You've come and been part of West Village. You've done the fast track. You've got excited about the idea of living in community on a mission. And then you realize, oh man, this is really hard. This is really costly. I don't, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, man, I got to share a meal with people every week? Potluck every week? Are you, are you kidding me? That's really hard. I mean, I can barely make supper for myself. You mean you want me to go talk to my neighbors? Have you met them? I'm just kidding. I have great neighbors. We love our neighbors. <laughs> We're probably the bad neighbors, actually. <laughs> Maybe initially you were excited by the gospel and it started to sprout up in you and you're like, man, I'm so passionate about Jesus. I want him to transform my life. I want him to make me a new person. And then it got hard. And that's dead in you. And maybe you're someone whose heart is represented by the seed that fell among the thorns. Again, you might be here every week. You might be participating in things, but you're not actually fruitful. You love Jesus, 
but his love is actually not transforming you. And, and the warning is there, right? If you don't allow the gospel to actually come and make you a new person, the little that you have gets lost. But here is what I want to encourage you with. What this parable tells us is the soil is actually all the same. You know, it's in different conditions, but it's all the same. And what does that mean? It means that a good farmer is going to be able to see those places where the seed has fallen that are not going to be fruitful, and he's going to do something about it. And we have the best farmer. And if you ask him, he can come in and prune away those thorny parts of your life so that you can bear fruit. He can break up the path so that the gospel can finally take root and transform you. He can uh, move that soil off of the the, uh, rocky ground and bring it into a place where it's actually going to be fruitful. And when he does, the results are going to blow your mind. And sure, you might not be the super evangelist who has hundreds of people who have come to faith through you. But when Jesus gets a hold of your life, the outcome will be what we call gospel saturation because you will not be able to contain it. So I want to encourage you with a, one last thought here. I uh, was wrestling through this concept this week as I was preparing to preach, and I was reminded of my youngest brother, My youngest brother is almost 15 years younger than me, and so I haven't had an opportunity to be a big part of his life for most of it. And I've seen sort of tendencies in him that really uh, made me uh, just cautious uh, and a little worried that he might choose to walk away from knowing Jesus. And I wasn't able to, to disciple him in the way I wanted to. Last Friday... We were celebrating uh, some family stuff. And my brother, uh, Marcus is his name, he just came into the living room. He's like, guys, I think I want to get baptized. You know, the only thing that I have really been able to do is pray. I have prayed for years for my younger brother that the Spirit of God would take root in his life, that the gospel would grow in him. And last Sunday, I got to watch as he declared to the world that indeed it had. What happened? It wasn't me. It was the sower who grew that in his life. And so the best thing that I can encourage you with as we continue to pursue the people around us on mission is to pray. It's why we do taste and see every month because we're not the sower. We can't change callous hearts and we can't open eyes, but we can pray to the one who has. And by his grace, he will bear fruit in us in those relationships. As we close, I'm gonna invite us to respond in a couple of different ways. The first way that we're gonna get to respond is through singing together. Man, if you have experienced this joy, this joy of knowing that your heart has been changed from being callous, that your eyes have been open, then let's just sing about it. Secondly, we're going to get to respond through giving. 
Jesus tells us that one of the things that pulls us away from fruitfulness is wealth. It's not bad to have wealth, but when it becomes a thing that governs our decisions and our hearts, then it's actually become our God. And so every week we have this opportunity to say, you're not my God. You're not the thing that I trust and to provide for me. He is. And we get to submit that back to him for his work, for his fruitfulness. Number three, you're going to get to respond by taking communion together. As you take the cracker and dip it into the wine or the grape juice, be reminded that Jesus didn't just replace our heart, but the means by which he did it was by giving up his own life for us. It was like a heart transplant. He took our rotten heart out and gave his pure heart and put it in. And we're also going to get to respond through prayer. And if you've felt today, as you've meditated, as you've listened to this, that there is some work that needs to be done because the ground is not where it needs to be, please take time to pray. I'd be more than happy to pray with you. Matt, who was here earlier giving announcements, would be more than happy to pray with you. Look around. There's so many people in this room who would be more than happy to pray with you or just simply pray in your seat. Let me close. Father, I confess that my heart, without your direct intervention, is calloused, that my eyes are closed, that I'm like a kid with my ears plugged by my fingers, my eyes closed, yelling, la, 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 I don't want to hear you. And you, you have graciously come as a good father. You've taken those fingers out of my ears. You've opened my eyes. And you've allowed me to see the truth of who I am without you. So Father, I pray, I pray that our church would be fruitful. That you would continue to break up the hard soil in our life that you would allow the seed of the gospel to bear rich fruit as the roots grow deep in our hearts and that it would overspill, overflow, spilling out into our city. Pray this in your name. Amen.